Hey folks, and welcome to Typology, the show in which we explore the mystery of the human personality through the lens of the Enneagram. My name is Anthony Skinner. I'm the producer of the show, and we're certainly happy to have you here. We got a fantastic show for you today, an amazing guest. Before I get to the guest, I want to remind you about Ian's new course, True You, a deeper exploration of your Enneagram type. Explore the depths of your specific Enneagram number and discover your path to growth in Ian's brand new course, True You. In this course, Ian takes a deep dive into each Enneagram number. Each number has its own 90-minute course covering basic fear and desire, instincts, passions, subtypes, virtues. Just talking through the process of creating this course with Ian has been transformational for me, so I know you're going to enjoy it. So all you need to do is go to typologyinstitute.com and join the wait list and you will be the first to find out when it drops. So hit that typologyinstitute.com. Okay, today's guest, this is a super, super big treat. Andy Stanley. Andy is second to none as a communicator. He is a best-selling author. I believe his last book was Irresistible, Reclaiming the New That Jesus Unleashed for the World. That book was amazing. And then his brand new book is Better Decisions, Fewer Regrets, which is what we'll be talking about today, by the way. He hosts the Leadership Podcast, which is amazing. Be sure you check that out. And he is the senior pastor of the Atlanta-based North Point Community Church, a non-denominational church. And today we are flipping the script on you folks. Andy is taking over as host and he is interviewing Ian and we are talking about how each number makes decisions. You're going to love this podcast. That's it for me, Anthony Skinner. And now here is the special guest host of our show, Andy Stanley. I'm Andy Stanley, and on this episode, we are talking about decision-making. More specifically, we are talking about decision-making by the numbers, the Enneagram numbers. And if you are not familiar with the Enneagram, well, you certainly will be by the time we wrap up this episode, because in the studio with me today is my friend, Ian Cron. Welcome back, Ian. It's great to be here, Andy. Thanks. Yeah, well, thanks for coming back. This is our our second rodeo together, uh, talking about leadership, but a little bit different filter. Um, Ian, as some of you know, is a best-selling author, an Enneagram teacher and podcast host. He is a psychotherapist, get this, songwriter and an Episcopal priest. And I'm pretty sure he makes his own clothes. Anyway, um, <laughs> most recently, um, Ian authored a book entitled The Road Back to You, subtitled An Enneagram Journey to Self-Discovery, which by the way, I have read this book twice and it has become a go-to resource for me as a staff management tool. Even though it's not written um, with that in mind, as you're gonna discover, there is so much to the Enneagram when it comes to leadership and staff management. So um, I'm excited to have Ian back, but before we talk about decision-making, Ian, real quick, um, sort of big macro level question. What are you telling leaders these days? I mean, we have a pandemic, an economic turndown. For some, it's an economic meltdown. For other people, they're making more money than ever. Um, it's a very interesting time to be in leadership or management. And, um, you know, this is the first time for all of us. So is there is there any advice that just it doesn't have to be about decision making? What, what are you telling leaders right now? Yeah, you know, I've, I've spoken with some of my corporate clients and people in the faith community as well. And what I what I warn them about is a tendency I think that people have when we're in a season of crisis, which is they move from being leaders to managers. Hmm. You know, the, and so leadership to over management is a bad transition, right? They right. want to get down into the weeds. They right. want to get too involved. 
in a time of crisis, what's needed most is for the leader to really lead, you know, more yep. than ever. Yep. And let let management do the management. Yep. And don't get involved in the day-to-day of that stuff. Wow, we should probably come back and talk about that for 45 minutes sometime because um, as you're saying that, I'm, a, I'm thinking about how I have in the last six or seven months had to resist that. And um, in resisting it, has uh, it set me up, we're gonna talk about this in a few minutes, to make some really big decisions that were 100% leadership decisions. In fact, not only were they not management decisions, um, the people around me who are more geared toward management, their eyes got big like, what? We're not gonna meet until when? We have 500 plus staff members, what are they going to do? And suddenly there is chaos in the wake of a purely leadership decision. But I can completely identify with the temptation to let's just sit back, retreat to what we know, and wait and see, and wait and see. And as you know, the organizations and nonprofits and churches in particular that are sitting back to wait and see, they're just waiting and they're missing an extraordinary leadership moment. So that is a great insight. And with all that's going on, it's forced us back to our topic to make some tough decisions, big decisions, uh, decisions with limited information. And as we're about to discover, there's actually a corollary to how we make decisions how well we make decisions, and how we are wired. And that brings us to the significance of the Enneagram as it relates to decision-making. So talk just a little bit about wiring and decision-making, and then we'll introduce folks to the Enneagram. Yeah, so you know, you're absolutely right. I think uh, our inborn temperament and our personality greatly influence uh, our decision-making styles. And they influence how we respond when when others make decisions that affect us as well. Yeah, we're gonna talk about that. Mm -hmm. Well, before we do a deep dive into the Enneagram, would you, real quickly, you did this last time you were with us and it was so helpful, even for those of us who are somewhat familiar with the Enneagram. Just give us a quick overview of the Enneagram, a little something on each type, and then we will um, talk about decision-making by the numbers. Okay, well, let's have at it. This is a... 50,000 foot, 200 mile an hour rundown of, <laughs> right. of nine types. So the Enneagram is an ancient personality typing system that teaches that there are nine basic personality types in the world, one of which we gravitate toward and adopt in childhood as a way to feel safe and, and cope in this new world of relationships. Very importantly, each of those types has a unconscious motivation that powerfully influences how that type acts, thinks, and feels on a moment-to-moment basis. So let's run through the nine types, okay? So type ones are called the improvers. Now, you'll be glad to know I changed that from the perfectionists to the improvers. Well, I really appreciate it because you told me I'm a number one, and I have... I have been uh, sort of wound up around this perfectionism, and now I'm an improver. That's, That's much right. better. And I can't wait to tell Sandra because, as you know, my wife is also a, a number one, mm-hmm. and which I always tell her she's number one. And uh, so I'll get to go home and tell her she's an improver. Yes. Well, if I had a nickel for every one that thanked me for changing <laughs> it from perfectionist to improver, I would be Jeff Bezos. Um, anyway, type ones, the improvers, they are ethical, meticulous, detail-oriented, and morally heroic. And they are motivated by a need to perfect themselves, others, and the world. Type twos are called the helpers. Warm, caring, giving. They are motivated by a need to be needed and to avoid acknowledging their own personal needs. Hmm. Type threes are called the performers. 
They are success-oriented, image-conscious, wired for productivity, and they're motivated by a need to succeed, to appear successful, and to avoid failure at all costs. Uh, fours, we call the unicorns of the Enneagram. We think there are fewer of them represented in the population than any other type. They're called the romantics. They're creative, they're sensitive, they're moody, they're motivated by a need to be special and unique. And do you know any fours? Jesus. Yeah. <laughs> the, the perfect answer because Ian is a four. Isn't that right? Aren't That's you a four? That's true. I am a four. four. Yeah. yeah. Jesus. Absolutely. That, that was great. Yeah. So type fives are called the investigators. They're analytical, detached, uh, and very private. They're probably the most emotionally detached number on the Enneagram by far. They are motivated by a need to gain knowledge, to conserve energy, and avoid relying on others. Uh, sixes are called the loyalists. They're committed, they're practical, they're witty. Uh, they're worst case scenario thinkers who are motivated by fear and the need for security, safety, and support. Sevens are called the enthusiasts. They're uh, fun, they're spontaneous, they are adventurous, they all get out. They're motivated by a need to be happy uh, and to plan stimulating experiences and to dream of futures filled with unlimited possibilities. My middle child is a seven and our whole experience with him growing up, of course we didn't know anything about the Enneagram, but our experience with him went like this. So what are we going to do? Well, mm -hmm. this is what we're gonna do. What are we going to do after that? Well, what are we going to do after that? I'm like, well, we haven't even done the first thing. I, don't, <laughs> I, right. I haven't planned that far ahead, but it was all about a sequence of fun interactions and experiences. And when I finally understood that, it made so much more sense. And I wish I'd known that earlier as a parent. Anyway, you keep going. Well, you just did a great advertisement for how powerful the Enneagram is yeah. in the context, not just of business or uh, in, of church, but also just marriages and, oh, and yeah. families yes. as, a, as a whole. Yeah, I have a seven it. son, by the way, as oh, well. Do? Oh, boy. So <laughs> I could tell you stories. Uh, type eights, they're called the challengers. They're commanding, they're intense, they're domineering, uh, confrontational at times. They are motivated by a need to assert strength and control over others in the environment in order to mask uh, tender and vulnerable feelings. Hmm. And the last one, nines, the peacemakers, often called the sweethearts of the Enneagram. I'm married to a nine. I have a nine daughter as well. Pleasant, laid back, accommodating, go with the flow people. They're motivated by a need to keep the peace, to merge with others, and to avoid conflict at all costs. Wow. Okay, so as you listen to that, of course, you were thinking about yourself, number one, because that's what we do. And then you were thinking about your spouse and perhaps your kids. So before we dive into decision making, for the person, this is their first experience or their first introduction to the Enneagram, um, where can they go to discover more just about, you know, where they, where they fall on the continuum? I know there are several tools. What, what would you recommend as a first step, Ian? So I'm going to be uh, shamelessly self-promotional right. for a moment. Right. Um, so there are lots of incredible books on the Enneagram. Most of them are 500 pages, very technical, uh, great for therapists, uh, some for lay people, but it's just a big, you got to quit your day job to read them. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Right. So The Road Back to You, this book that I wrote was specifically written to be a primer. You could learn just enough about the Enneagram. Yep 
that you know it, it would make a positive difference in your life but if you decide to never read another book on it you know you get your money's worth right um, the other resources I if you went to my website ianmorgancron.com hit the tab for IEQ 9 that's our Enneagram assessment it is in my estimation the most accurate Enneagram assessment that's available and by the way I didn't tell you this but for your listeners uh, if they go they just enter the code NORTHPOINT2020 and they'll get a 15% discount oh wow so the website one more time is ianmorgancron.com and just hit the tab and the code is North Point 2020. North Point 2020. This is the assessment I took. Yes. It helped me tremendously. And um, I've, again, uh, there's a fee, but I'm telling you what you learn, not only about your um, yourself, but in terms of leadership, again, as we're going to discover, and as we talked about last time Ian was in the studio, there are so many layers to the Enneagram as it relates to relationships at home and at work. So the topic today is decision making. Yep. The way we make decisions is certainly impacted by our Enneagram and the way we respond as we're going to see to decisions made about us is also impacted. So let's work through the nine types and talk about their approach to decision making. And let's begin with number one. Number one. Number one. The improvers. <laughs> the improvers. I'm so excited. <laughs> so I think when approaching a decision, improvers first use their gut and then quickly use their heads to double check their gut reaction. So they go with intuition first? Yep. Yep. Is that gut? Intuition? Yeah, this gut feeling, right. um, intuition, but then quickly their mind jumps in to evaluate the wisdom of what their gut just told them. And this is why I second guess my decisions quickly. Really? Yes, as a one. I, I feel like I know. I'll even announce it and begin moving in a direction. And then as I'm driving home, or late that night, I begin running it through the filter of intellect only. And of course, when you do that, you can right. find flaws with everything in the world. Yep. And so that is the pattern. And I've had to learn to ignore the voice and trust my instinct. Yeah. So I think everyone asks a question, right, when faced with a decision. And I think improvers ask themselves, you know, what's the principled thing to do? Uh, which in t which decision has the most integrity? And that's been my experience of ones, and I think that's true. And a tip for ones would be just be careful that, you know, your need to make the perfect decision doesn't cause unnecessary delays. Yes, and um, today in the studio with us are several people. We have a small audience. And Susie, who is our producer who works for me, uh, she is an eight, correct? And we'll get to that in a minute. And I've learned with the eights, I'm surrounded by eights because eights, they get things done, um, that the worst thing I can do is to hold up their progress oh, by yeah. delaying a decision unnecessarily or thinking it through so many layers that they're like, could you just yeah. make a decision? So I've this is something I've had to learn. And for those of you who are in leadership who are surrounded by eights, and if you wonder why they're frustrated, um, it's not them. It's just when the one meets the eight and the one is the boss. So That's right. Yes. It, Susie would be a far better boss than I am. <laughs> Fortunately, the reason I'm the boss, you know why I'm the boss? I got here first. That's it. It has nothing to do with leadership, IQ. Okay, let's keep moving. Number two. Okay, the helpers, right? So when they're making decisions, as you might imagine, helpers rely on feelings 
and the impact of the decision on their relationship with others. So the question they're, they're gonna ask themselves is, will this decision negatively impact other people? They're the most interpersonal number on the Enneagram. They're, they're literally gonna think, well, how will this decision affect Barbara? You know, she's pregnant, she's a single mom. I mean, they go actually, they zero in on an individual and they start thinking it through. Wow. So I, I tell twos making decisions, like don't let your, your feelings stand in the way of hard decisions. Because hmm. that might be a Will a two weakness. avoid a decision that negatively impacts someone simply because it negatively impacts someone? Is that the? Because they're so interpersonal. Right. Uh, they go to bed thinking about relationships. They wake up in the morning thinking about relationships. Relationships are everything to them. So they're gonna be thinking, how will this decision impact others, right? And so that's going to be their, the first thing going through their mind. And I just, have to, I just have to tell them, don't let your feelings stand in the way of making our decision. But when you say feelings, the way they hear that is don't let your compassion stand in the way. Don't let your sensitivity, which sounds like you're anti-virtues at that point, right? So how does, it, how does a two decide, okay, it feels like I'm not being a caring person? Twos would need to learn that feelings... Uh, that compassion itself is a feeling, empathy is a feeling. Sometimes hard decisions have to be made that will be difficult, will be possibly bruising to others, but they still have to be made. Mm -hmm. The question is, can you make them compassionately and with empathy? Can you be clear and compassionate at the same time? And that is difficult for twos because the compassion, what, what I've seen happen is in their desire and correct me if I'm wrong about this in their desire to be compassionate when the conversation is over they haven't been clear That's this right. is especially true for a manager who is a hiring manager who is then having to either discipline someone within the organization or let them go yes and at the end of the conversation they feel like they've been clear the other person walks out and it's like am I Am I fired? Am yeah, I on exactly. probation? So again, this is when you have to write it all down, hand them a piece of paper to make sure when they walk out, they walk out with yeah. clarity. Yeah. Because in my desire to be compassionate, I lose. it's easy to lose clarity. Yeah, so I worked with a, a CEO of a company, and was a two, and he was asking my advice about firing one of his top people. And I said, when they come in and sit down, I want you to say the hardest thing first. Yep. Bob, I want you to know I'm going to let you go, and now we're, I want to talk to you about the reasons why. Yeah, don't bury that lead. Exactly. Yeah. Lead, lead with the truth. Always lead with the hardest truth first, and you'll be in a lot better shape than trying to amp up to it. Because I think on the route up, that's when you start to get cloudy and nebulous and detours and, and everything else. Yep. And then somebody says, well, how did it go? And the two says, I think it went great. And then they ask the other person, how did it go? It's like, I don't know what, I'm not sure. <laughs> yeah. yeah, okay, Number. Go on, work, working our way through the numbers. Uh, what does a three look like when it comes to making decisions? Yeah, you know, threes, the performers, they're pragmatists, you know? So when they're making a decision, they will rapidly consider what are the pros and the cons, and then move very quickly to, to plans and action. So the question they're gonna ask themselves is, you know, what's the most efficient choice, right? And I have to tell them all the time, don't let expediency blind you to the impact of your decision on other people. Hmm. You know? So their tendency is to overlook how their decision impacts other people. Yeah, because their, their attention, their focus of attention tends to be on the goal line all the time. It's, it's about, we got to cross the finish line first. Well, you got to remind them that there are people between you and the goal line. Hmm. 
right? And you, you just can't tackle or take down everybody en route and expect to have a functioning team at the end. And this probably ties back into the fact that threes like to win because threes like to be winners and threes like to be the most popular. And so in an effort to score themselves high in terms of a task, it would make sense that their, their sensitivity quotient yeah. may drop in the process. Is that correct? Yeah. I mean, I think when they're unhealthy, they, they have, they're ambitious in the worst sense of the word, hmm. you know? Now, what, talk a little bit more about that. Well, um, they're lone wolves. They're not team players. They want to win. They want to be successful. Now, that's in their most unhealthy expression. When, when they're healthy, they're, they're, they want the team to win, right? They don't have to drive the bus. They're perfectly happy being on the bus, you know, mm -hmm. they don't have to flaunt their success. They actually want to hear about your success and ask you, how can I make you more successful? So what does it look like when a healthy three makes a decision? Are they less prone to run over people between where they are in the goal line or? I think they're gonna balance efficiency with relationships and they're not gonna confuse efficiency with effectiveness. Mm -hmm. And the unhealthy three? Is going to want to get to that goal line as as efficiently and as quickly as possible without thinking about people en route to it. Wow. Now, I know we're jumping ahead, and this may not be a fair question. Okay, an unhealthy three sounds to me a little bit like the direction a, an unhealthy eight would trend toward. Is that? It might sound the same, but the motivation is very okay. different. Okay, oh yeah, that's right. Right, the motivation is right, completely we'll different. All right, we'll get to an eight in just a minute. And, and by the way, eights are, usually far more aggressive than a, a three is. A three would be more diplomatic, you know? Eights, diplomacy is not a gift for eights. <laughs> All right, so let's talk about fours, the individualists. Um, fours tend to make well-considered value-based decisions, often utilizing intuition, which scares other numbers to death, right? Mm -hmm. um, they may make a decision like, I have this feeling, this intuition that this is the direction in which to go. It can take them a long time to get to the decision, but they are intuition-based Well, they're decision artists makers. and poets. So That's right. they're, they, live in that, they live more in that world than right. some of the other numbers. Which is why a tip that I get, and, and you know, people don't think they're fours in business, but there are plenty of fours in business. You know, I know some great four leaders. I just always have to remind them when you make a decision, you can't just do it on the basis of feelings. Make sure you add critical thinking to your decision-making process. Especially when you're explaining your decision <laughs> to your team, right? Exactly. I mean, if you're a solo artist, you know, all day long, but yes. when you're sitting around the table and you have an, an idea and intuition, there ha I mean, if, if I'm trying to follow a four, you gotta give me more than you have a, a feeling about something. Yeah, right? and they lead by force of personality. Like the, they, they the often do. force a personality. They're big, oftentimes that big, and they're very creative and they're very intense. And they can be very intimidating. They tend to be articulate and they can speak in metaphor and symbol and image, you know, all that stuff. So give us an example of a four that perhaps we've all heard of. Who, who is a four that's a leader, uh, maybe a business leader? Okay, so I can only speculate because from a distance, I don't know the unconscious motivation driving. But you wrote the book. Come you on, should just man. be. A, you should know this. Stuff. Okay, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Well, uh, I, mean, I think you know what. While you're trying to think of an answer, I'm sorry to spring this on you, so our audience knows. 
for a long time, I thought I was a five because my daughter, who was with us in our last time you were here, she was part of the podcast. She's a three. She can. She told me I was a five. She just felt like I was so emotionally detached. And Dad, you're a five. You don't even need to read the book or take the test. You're a five. And then uh, we met at a Catalyst conference, and you were, we were both walking out the door, and I mentioned I was a five, and you kind of looked at me like, I don't think so. <laughs> you need to take the test. And so, so anyway, you were so good at just pegging me as a one. I just assumed. Anyway, go ahead. So we'll, we'll trust your judgment. Give us a, who comes to well, mind maybe, when you think of a famous yeah, four? Yeah, so maybe Anna Wintour, the editor of Vogue magazine. The movie The Devil Wears Prada is loosely based on, on, uh, on her life. Yeah. But so intense, driven. Um, people don't tend to, they think of Ford's, you know, wandering around just reading poetry and, and you know, mm-hmm. picking flowers. And uh, I've known some great leaders, uh, leaders at Herman Miller, uh, leaders at the Ritz-Carlton, at Tiffany's. But of course, that makes sense, right? right. Th- those are all companies that require creatives yep. uh, in the mix. They're all about environments and creating environments or oh. creating something. And the Ford's are the, the creators. So... That, that would make sense. Yeah, they have a. They are exquisitely attuned to aesthetics and beauty. Hmm. Okay, moving on. Number five, the, the thinkers. Yeah, when it's time to make a decision, fives will research and analyze all the relevant facts and then make logical, thoroughly reasoned decisions. Okay? So before they make a decision, they're going to ask themselves, what do the facts and data say? That's basically all they trust. It, for example, if they are with someone who's made a decision based on feelings or intuition, they have no time for it. <laughs> so they shouldn't work for fours. No, they should not work for fours. <laughs> the five will go, uh, have you really done the research on that? Hmm. You know, do you have the graphs? Do you have the data that, that says this is the right decision? But that's why I think I tell uh, you know fives all the time to make wiser and faster decisions. They can't rely solely on their mind. Uh, they need to consult their heart and their gut as well. And if they're really out of touch with them, they better have some people around them who are gut and heart people. Hmm. So a famous five. Who would be a famous five? We know you're guessing. But yeah, I, I would say Bill Gates. Have you have you seen the documentary Inside Bill's Mind? No. Oh, promise me you'll watch it. I promise. Like on today. the podcast, I promise. No, I can't <laughs> promise I'll watch it today. No, no, seriously. First of all, I'm he's not. fascinating. Um, he's a very strong leader, and he's a five. And it's so clear on the documentary that he's a five. Really, a, an amazing person. So sixes. Yeah, you How know. How do sixes make decisions? Yeah, one of my favorite numbers on the Enneagram. I love sixes, the loyalists. Now, sixes are gonna think long and hard about the impact of all the possible decisions, right? Including all the worst case scenarios that might become problems or disasters. So they're gonna let their minds go down all the different paths. Oh, oh, you bet. Okay. Yeah. And they're going to have a chorus of voices in their head offering different opinions, you know. And so I think the question they're going to ask themselves is, which decision involves the least risk? Hmm. I mean, that's why you want a risk manager to be a six. You know, that's why you want your CFO to be a six, you know, on the Enneagram. You know, I worked with a company where uh, the founder, CEO, was a seven. Very common. Very, very common that the entrepreneur is the seven. And one of the smartest things he did was... Uh, hire a six CFO. Wow, on purpose or on it purpose. just turned out? Yeah, and then I worked with a company in Silicon Valley and 
this is a true story. It was like 10 28-year-olds that a venture capital firm dropped $28 million on, right? Because they had a great product. And I went out there to meet with them, and this young guy says to me, I just need to talk to you about one of my employees. He's our oldest employee. He was like 38, you know? Ancient. <laughs> By the way, I'm having this conversation over ping pong, you know, yeah. because that's how it works in their <laughs> office, you know? And he said, you know, we do these dream team meetings and we have a whiteboard and I get up there and I'm saying, we're gonna take down Amazon, we're gonna take down Google, this is how we're gonna do it. And he says, it never fails. This hand goes up in the back of the room and everyone just goes, because oh, they know what's coming. And he'll say, you know, I, I think that sounds like a really good idea, but maybe we should wait until next year in the fourth quarter when we have more cash flow. Mm. And, you know, he can, you yeah. know, he's spotting the worst case scenario, the problem. So this young guy says to me, I'm thinking of firing him. And I grabbed this kid by the lapels and I said, the last thing you want to do is fire that guy, wow. you know? Because he is the only thing standing between you and jail. You, know? <laughs> <laughs> you need to have someone who knows how to tap the brakes. Yeah, yeah. no, and, we all need guardrails. Yeah. yeah, we all need them, and that's what a six is. You just have to teach them how to express it without sounding like Eeyore. Mm -hmm. you know? And it's possible. They're, I love sixes. They're fantastic people. Sevens, how do sevens make decisions? The, the outgoing, fun, everything has to be fun. Oh my Highly gosh. Yeah. yeah, so they're gonna come up with multiple options for possible decisions, as well as a variety of ways to take action on them. Now, you know how that works. They're thinking of the future. These are uh, people who know how to take in a lot of information. They see overlapping patterns, how things can be synthesized, hybridized. I mean, they're really brilliant at it, right? But they can get too much into it, right? So I always tell them, you know, uh, don't be impulsive, which is a problem for them. And make sure that you have all the information before mm. you make a decision. Because sometimes they'll say, I got a great idea. And then they run off and do it without considering all the information. So a famous seven. Uh, Steve Jobs. I think Steve Jobs is probably a seven. And you say that because, I mean, obviously there's the, the creative element and the, the big thinking element and chasing lots of ideas. Um, because that sounds a little bit like a four. But. Yes, no, he definitely was not a four. Oh, he wasn't, okay. No, definitely not a four. I would say that because he was an explorer, he was an adventurer. Remember all the time he spent in India, right? He was drawn to kind of mystical themes uh, mm -hmm. that affected him later in his business life. And also because he had a perfectionist streak, which would make sense for a seven. And man, when you read Walter Isaacson's book about him, you can see that perfectionism coming out, often in the worst of ways. So I would say he was probably of not so healthy seven. So sevens can borderline on perfectionism. Yeah, so when they're under stress, right? Right. They go to the low side of one. Uh. They become unhealthy perfectionists. They're always gonna be a seven. They're just gonna look, act, right? And you know, behave in the world like an unhealthy one. And that brings us to Susie. I mean, that brings us to the eights. Yeah, the challengers. So- How do challengers make decisions? Oh, well, see if this sounds familiar. So when eights make decisions, they go bigger, they go home, man. Uh, they're not afraid to make big, immediate, gut-based decisions. 
Now, remember you, you, you said to me that threes sound like that? Mm -hmm. They won't make decisions that way. They, remember, threes are afraid of failure. So they're not gonna take the same kind of risk that an eight will make. They will be much more deliberate. You know, they got the board out, pros and cons. I mean, eights make decisions right from their gut and they'll do it quickly. And even if it's a really big decision, they'll do it that way. And well, here, here's what I've learned about that, about eights. And I, don't, I didn't mean to interrupt. I have learned to trust the decision-making ability of eights because I know for me, being a one, that my tendency, again, is to, I know what I feel, but then I start second-guessing, and then I go into data collection mode. Right. And I have found that when I start moving in that direction, there are two or three eights that I can call, and when their initial response lines up, I've learned to distrust that. This is really, this is in fact, in terms of Enneagram, this has probably been the most helpful thing to me as a leader, to trust the gut of the eights. And because I know who they are in the organization, because we've incorporated this thinking um, in our organization, I know, who the, I know who they are. Of course, you can generally tell who yeah. they, they are anyway, right? But I, I've learned to trust their gut when it comes to decision making. They're, they're just, they're good. Yeah, you know, they're always thinking which decision will maintain forward motion? Yep, they it's love progress. It's all about yep. motion. Yep. The energy's driving forward all the time. And so that's why I have to tell them sometimes, slow down, you know, you could afford to consider the downstream impact of your decision. Mm -hmm. So I worked with a company not long ago and there were 12 senior management people in the room. And it was a big company, right? And, uh, I would bet probably 500, I'm not exaggerating, of the employees of that company were fives. They were coders. Oh. And their new boss was an eight on the management team. And I said to him, how's it going? He goes, not so well. <laughs> <laughs> because they're moving so slow. Well, first of all, all that huge amount of energy, that larger than life presence uh, was overwhelming to the fives, right? Uh, it feels intrusive, it feels invasive, it feels overwhelming. They only have so much energy for relationships, they're trying to conserve it. Eights are sucking it out of them, right? And so I said, well, you just got back a whole host of surveys from your people. You've had a banner year, uh, what did they say? Uh, they're, they're unhappy with us. They, they, they wanna know what we're doing, we're not communicating enough, blah, blah, blah. And I said, well, you, you are all eights, you are assuming that everybody is an eight. Hmm. And what you're not taking into consideration is downstream, there are fives and twos and sevens, and they're all responding to these enormous changes and they're exhausted from it. Hmm. They just can't keep up with you. So this is why it's so helpful yep. to know the Enneagram. Yep. You know, it, it's predictive, you know, in a way that, you know, not perfect, but it's really useful. Okay, so that's the eight, and last but certainly not least, the nines. How do nines make decisions? Yeah, well, you know, they're called the sweethearts of the Enneagram. I'm married to a nine, I'm the father of a nine, so I have some affection and inside knowledge on how peacemakers make decisions. So they're gonna listen to varying perspectives and alternatives, and then make the decision based on consensus. So they're consensus builders. Yes. Absolutely. And they can make great leaders. In fact, I think our best presidents have been nines. For example? Well, let me put it this way. 
Best before you the tell worst. us who yeah. your favorite president. No, it's not my favorite presidents, but d- depending on what side of the aisle you are on, y- you can't deny that they were effective, right, right, in what they were going to do. Ronald Reagan was a nine, mm-hmm. for sure. Uh, now, what makes you say that about Ronald Reagan? The demeanor, I mean, he'd be off at Camp David riding his horse while people were back in Washington, you know, doing their thing. So listen, I think Bill Clinton was a nine. Mm -hmm. Barack Obama was a nine. The reason is, Clinton, for example, he could get people around the table. I mean, who else but a nine could solve Northern Ireland and the Balkans Mm. if, as a peacemaker, they didn't have the ability to bring people to the table and find middle ground? Mm and get consensus, you know? That nines are, that is their superpower, you know, when they're in their best space. When they're not in their best space, they don't actually land on a decision, they just keep talking to all the alternatives. Because they can't make a decision until they feel there's consensus or until they've reached consensus or? It's because they're afraid of conflict. Uh. They're afraid to say, this is the direction. Based on everything I've heard here, this is the direction we're going to go in because that's going to disaffect the yep. four out of the five people at the table. So when somebody listening discovers they're a nine, it's like, oh, good, I'm like a president. Oh, no, I, I'm going to have a tendency to wait too long to make the decision. How does a nine overcome that? What can be negative inertia? It's all about self-awareness. There was this study done at Cornell in their business school, and they did a study of 72 high-performing CEOs of companies ranging from 50 million to 5 billion bucks. And what they wanted to know was what quality or characteristic did these people have that accounted for their success? And everybody thought the answer was going to be grit, determination, strategic planning, etc. And the answer that came back upended their expectations. Here's the quote from the study. The key predictor of success among leaders is self-awareness. Wow. That was the common denominator. That is the direct quote. So I think if, and self-awareness means the ability to monitor and self-regulate your behavior in real time, watching how it's affecting other people. It's, it's not running on autopilot, hmm. you know? You're awake and you're aware and you're monitoring and you're, again, self-regulation. Right? Well, again, to our podcast listeners, your book, um, once you discover your number and you read about yourself, like any evaluation tool, but if for some reason, this one more than others, when you read about yourself, you cannot help but become self-aware because you either go, oh, that's me, or you say to your spouse or your partner or your best friend, does this sound like me? Or you say, but I don't think I do that. And then they just stare at you like, yes, exactly. <laughs> and the stare means you are not self-aware, but you now have an opportunity to become so. Yeah. Because, yeah, I mean, and that's when we read this as a family and talked about it as a family, I would get to that part. But, but I don't do that, do I? Silence around the table. I guess I do. And now I'm aware that I do. Right. So if that is the number one predictor of, or the common denominator among successful leaders, then the Enneagram in this book in particular is certainly a tool to help a person, if nothing else, become more self-aware. So that's, that's fascinating. Yeah, absolutely. Now, you recently have had to make some difficult decisions, right? Yeah, yeah going back to where we started, you yeah. know, retreating to management versus leading. Yeah. Yes. So I want to just talk to you about that a little bit as a one, right? What was the process like for you in making the decision to close 
until 2121. Yeah, so you're talking about our decision to not have church services. That's right. Yeah, during the pandemic. Yeah, well, at first it was a three weekend decision. The interesting thing about that decision is most of my friends who were pastors were wrestling with whether or not not to meet the following Sunday. I made the decision, we're not gonna meet for three Sundays. And pastors called me and said, what do you know that we don't know? And my answer was, I don't know anything you don't know. I just don't want my staff waiting and wondering. I want them to be able to have enough running room and enough uh, a window of opportunity to know what to do because to say, we'll just wait for next week, we'll just see next week, that's just no way to lead. So for me, this decision really was as much about leading as it was trying to predict what to do in a pandemic. Right. So then we shut down, we said, hey, we're not gonna meet for the whole summer. And again, people are like, the whole summer, and then again, other churches were kind of taking it a week or two at a time. But again, you know, clarity in the midst of certainty, we can't provide certainty, all we can provide is clarity. We talked a little bit about that earlier. So then as we get closer to August, we realize nothing's gonna change, we're not even sure school's gonna begin. I just wanted our staff to have a big window of opportunity to do new things, to do innovative things without worrying about, mm. are we gonna crank up next week? Are we Because starting back up in our situation because our environments are so large is not a casual endeavor. That's right. not, hey, call everybody on Thursday, we're gonna have church Sunday. We, we just can't operate that way. So for me, it really was about creating an environment that was best for our staff so they could be outward facing and do new things in the community. But the process itself, I think is what you're asking about. We had a meeting with all of our campus pastors, probably 15, 12 people in this meeting. And the interesting thing was, I thought it was gonna be a long conversation. And I did not want to um, Im certainly impose my will. And I didn't know what everybody was thinking. So we start this conversation and I threw out a couple of options. And Clay Scroggins, one of our lead pastors, who's also an author, he said, I don't see any reason for us to even think about opening until the end of the year or next year. He just threw it out. Well, that's what I was thinking. I, I wasn't sure anybody, because that was a really bold move to make in July, right? right? Right. And I look around the room and everybody's kind of shaking their head. And seriously, in five minutes, that decision was made. Hmm. But again, it was made within the context of we have 550 people, employees, think of what we could do if we freed up their weekends rather than wait, wait, wait. So that was, there was a little bit, the consensus was important to me, but I knew intuitively, I just, I don't know. And that doesn't happen all the time. I just knew that is the thing to do. I just hope I can get this group because that if that group hadn't bought in 110%, I'm not sure because that was a really big, potentially a big, potentially expensive decision. And of course we got you know, some pushback on it. So it was, to your point, it was gut first, and then after we made it, you know, for the next few days, I'm second guessing going, oh, but what about, what about, what right. But in terms of self-awareness, I've learned that's not the time to listen to that little voice in my head um, because the smart people agreed, the eights agreed, there was consensus in terms of, you know, people who are the processors and those who kind of go with their gut. So we just never looked back and on we went. And, you know, there's, it's still playing out. So that was kind of the process. Does that sound like a one? It does sound like a one, and it sounds like a one with a nine wing. You know, we talk about wings. Like, yeah, we haven't talked about wings in this discussion, so real quick, what, explain well, the wing. Well, you know, your nine, we have two numbers adjacent to our own, and... So I would either have as a, one, a, a you could nine have a, or a two. A nine or a two. Right, because I'm a one. Yeah, and so 
we pick up some of the characteristic traits. Uh, think of it like salt and pepper, right? You, you just pick up some of the characteristic traits of the whatever your dominant wing, right, is mm-hmm. next to you. It's a, and yours is a nine. And you've used the word consensus three or four times since we yep. began this conversation. So that was important to you. It wasn't paramount necessarily right. because your dominant number is one. But, but, it, but it is important to me. There's it is no important. Doubt about that. Yeah. Um, but I also think probably ultimately in the back of your mind where you landed was it's just the right thing to do. Mm-hmm. And that's, what, that's what's really going to occupy one's attention. And that has given me energy and focus pushing through the resistance and convincing some of our staff who they just see the world a little bit differently. And because of where they live and where they work, it, it was just a more difficult decision for some rather than others. But that's my responsibility then as a leader is to you know make sure there's clarity at that level hmm. too. So thanks for asking. No, no, I, thank you for answering. I was just impressed by the decision when I, when I heard it. <laughs> Not everyone was. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's, that's that thing called leadership, right? Yeah, yeah. So this is a very timely decision because you've just written a book about decision making that's coming out in October, which yep. I read yesterday. So you read the, the advanced reader copy. Yes. So there were a number of things in the book that really were eye-opening for me. And one was the issue of pay attention to the tension. Hmm. And it made me sit up because I, I have an issue in my life right now where I have not been paying attention to the tension. And I uh, was telling Susie earlier, you know, if you get one sentence sometimes out of a book that changes a direction in your life, hmm. it was worth the other 200 pages. Just that one <laughs> Hopefully sentence. Hopefully there were some other good things in oh, there Oh, there well. were, there was on legacy and other stuff like that. Yep. But that sentence, that idea. Wow was a game changer. That book is going to be a game changer for people. Well, thanks. Well, it's called Better Decisions, Fewer Regrets, and it comes out in October, and I'm excited about it. And these are, you know, life lessons. It's The book is organized around five questions people should ask every time they make a, a big decision. So hopefully it will help some folks make better decisions and live with fewer regrets. Hey, this is Anthony Skinner, and I hope you enjoyed part one of our two-part series around decision-making and the Enneagram. Next week, we'll talk about how other people's decisions impact us based on our numbers. So stay tuned for that. Andy Stanley's book, Better Decisions, Fewer Regrets, is out now. And make sure you go to typologyinstitute.com. That's typologyinstitute.com. And get on the waiting list for Ian's brand new course, True You. Hope you have a great week, folks. See ya.